audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 2 Samuel 31. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hi, good morning, church. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, there are a lot of people that are sick right now, so it's good that you're at least uh, healthy enough to be here. Um, you may be sick and sitting here. Um, I don't know, but welcome. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here as well. Um, yeah, man, what a, what a good morning so far. Actually been... A lot going on this week as a church that you may or may not have known about. Uh, last week we had our membership class. We had five individuals from our body come through that membership class expressing interest in becoming a covenant member with Emmanuel Church. It's super exciting, grateful for that. Uh, we are in the process as well of bringing on a new elder to help shepherd and pastor us as a body. And that's been awesome. Christine and I have had dinner with him and his wife and family on Friday night. And Super excited about that. Um, tomorrow night, I'm meeting with a group of women from our church to talk about what women's ministry could look like in Emmanuel Church going forward. And so I'm excited about that. There's just a lot of good things going on um, as we enter into this fall season um, that we're really, really grateful for and excited for. And, and as always, I'm grateful to God for having the opportunity to open his word with you. A lot of ground to cover today. If you're new with us, we've been trekking through 1 Samuel in the spring and took a break for the summer, and now we're back in 2 Samuel in the fall. And so you're kind of, if you're new, you're kind of plopping down right in the middle of a two-book story, essentially. And I encourage you, if you want to, you can go back and listen to all those sermons from last semester and uh, even the last two for this semester. But we got a lot of ground to cover today. We're pretty much going to tackle three chapters in 2 Samuel. And there are a lot of places and geography and terrain in these three chapters that are pretty foreign to us, living, you know, 2,900 years later in Birmingham, Alabama. And we're not going to read every single verse in these chapters, but I'm going to summarize it for us. And hopefully you have been reading along this week in anticipation for today. If you have not, I encourage you again to do that. Every Monday in our newsletter, I send out kind of the preaching text that's going to be coming, and I would love for... You can prepare yourself to hear from the Spirit, uh, being in His Word um, all week. And so, um, obviously, you can obviously begin tomorrow. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, preparing yourself for next Sunday. But if there are any questions that you have uh, that we don't get to in these three chapters, if you've been reading along, and you know, what's going on right here, you got my phone number. If you don't have my phone number, I can give you my phone number, and we can talk. Or you can come up after the service, we can talk then. Um, but I'd love for you to ask me, and, and you can... Ask away whatever questions you have. But to help us out right now, as we kind of get going in this summation of chapters 2 to 4, uh, I want to throw up a map on the screen for us. So I'm a big fan. We talked last week. I like maps. Uh, it's kind of small for y'all, but I'm going to allude to it a little bit. Um, this is a map of Israel around the time that we're in right now. So you see we've got two warring kingdoms at this time. This kingdom hasn't necessarily split, but David is in the process of Gaining the throne, Ishbosheth, king of the north, David in the south, uh, all this good stuff. So I'm going to refer to this map, and Hannah, can we just leave it up there for a while? I'm going to like point to it. And, okay, great, awesome. 
but feel very teacher-like today. Um, but our narrative picks up pretty much where we left off last week. Two of our main players from last week uh, that are referenced again this morning in more detail are Abner and Ishbosheth. If you remember, Abner and Ishbosheth show up. We've shown it before, but they particularly show up in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 2, 2 Samuel. Abner, Saul's first cousin, commander of his armies, big time player in the execution of Saul's plans for the kingdom. He tags Saul's youngest and only remaining son, Ishbosheth, the fourth son, who's still alive. You know, Saul and his sons died on Mount Geboa at the end of 1 Samuel. Ishbosheth, the only remaining son of Saul. Abner tags him to be the king of the tribes of Israel. Minus Judah. You know, David, last week as we saw, was anointed king in the tribe of Judah. But every other tribe in Israel is following Ishbosheth at this time. David in the south, Ishbosheth in the north. The beginning in our text for this morning, in verse 12 of chapter 2, 2 Samuel 2, Abner and his troops, they begin making their way towards Gibeon. So Gibeon is in the south of the green area right there, if you can see it. Kind of close to the border as you enter into David's territory. So Abner starts heading down to Gibeon. We're not really sure why Abner's heading to Gibeon. There could be a variety of reasons. But Abner and his men are heading there. Joab, remember that name, Joab, he's the commander of David's armies in the south. So Joab and his men hear that Abner's coming south to Gibeon. They meet Abner at Gibeon, particularly the pool of Gibeon right there which is a large reservoir of water, about 37 feet across, 83 feet deep. It's a pretty, pretty large area of water. And once these two warring generals, they get to this pool, this pool of Gibeon, they pick 12 of their best men from each army. And they say, hey, you guys fight. <laughs> you guys fight for us. And depending on how this battle goes, we'll determine a victory for one of the two armies. It's kind of like if you've, uh, we read David and Goliath last semester, kind of David representing Israel, Goliath, the Philistines. If you've seen the movie Troy, like at the very beginning, it's like Achilles and Boagrius, you know, these two individuals representing the whole army. I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. Twelve men on each side representing the whole army. However the battle goes, so goes the armies. He, whoever wins, gets the victory. But unfortunately, the twelve guys, they all kill each other. Um, there's no winner. All 24 of them died. They're all dead. And so the battle ensues nonetheless. Verse 17 of chapter 2, if you look at it, it says the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the troops of the north are routed by Joab and troops of the south, David's army. And Abner and his troops begin to flee away from Gibeon. Yes, tracking so far, story tracking so far. All right, cool. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that thumbs up. And we continue to read about this route. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, we hear that Joab has two brothers. You see that Joab, Abishai, and Azahel are all brothers. They're actually also cousins of David. And so Azahel, probably the youngest of these three guys, these three brothers, he begins chasing after Abner. And the text describes Azahel as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. Right? So he's a pretty fast guy. And Abner, the commander of the north, you remember, no doubt skilled in combat, fighting as commander of armies, tries to tell Azahel two times, stop chasing me. Turn aside, stop chasing me. I don't want to spill your blood. Stop chasing me. 
But Azahel continues to chase him, and Abner kills him. And Azahel's brothers, Joab and Abishai, they want their vengeance. They start chasing Abner until Abner finally convinces them to stop the pursuit, stop chasing after me. And Abner heads north back to Mahanaim, which is right there, kind of middle of the screen to the right. Mahanaim's got a star with a circle around it. And then Joab and his forces head south to Hebron, capital of Judah, down there in the south. So we're now divided again. Abner in the north with his armies. David, or Joab in the south with his armies. And then chapter 2 comes to an end. And we're back to where we started. Mahanaim, Hebron. And chapter 3 starts by giving us a summary of the next handful of chapters. We already read verse 1, chapter 3. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. David begins having sons, increasing his house, technically, by having children. And Saul's only remaining son, Ishbosheth, begins to alienate and drive away those most important in his kingdom, particularly with Abner. So you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, 2 Samuel. It says that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Which kind of confirms our suspicions of Abner and setting up Ishbosheth to reign to begin with. This, creating this puppet king that Abner can reign through. It, it put out his power through. Ishbosheth, for some reason, accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his dad's concubines in verse 7. One of Saul's concubines. Now if this accusation was true, which we're not sure if it's true or not, based on the text, but if it was true, it would mean that Abner was trying to literally make himself strong in the house of Saul by having a son himself in the house of Saul to compete eventually with Ishbosheth. You know, it's more than just an accusation of bad morality. It's an accusation of treason against Abner. And Abner's angry enough, whether it's true or not, Abner's angry enough to rend his services to David in the south. And so Abner sends messengers to King David in the south and Judah down here, trying to broker an alliance between Abner and his men and King David. And David says, sure. They can do that on one condition. I want you to bring me my wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, if you remember, back in verse Samuel, whom I killed, 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 I'm not killed, I killed, it's a very southern name, Mississippi's just flowing through me today. Um, that's right, amen. Uh, killed a hundred Philistines to marry. Saul, I heard David, had given Michael to another man back in First Samuel 25 as David was fleeing from Saul. And Abner's like, yeah, I'll bring her. So Abner brings her south. It's a really sad scene. We're going to come back to it here in just a moment. But Michael comes south with Abner to be given to David. In verse 20 of chapter 3, Abner arrives in Hebron. David throws him a feast. An alliance is forged, and Abner is sent away in peace. But shortly thereafter, Joab, David's commander of his armies, Remember, Abner killed Joab's brother, right? Azahel. Abner killed him. Joab comes back from a raid, and he finds out that David has made an alliance with Abner, and he's real mad. He heads off to find Abner, and he finds Abner, and he kills him. He kills Abner. And David hears about it, and now he's really mad at Joab. 
And he calls down a curse on Joab and his descendants for generations to come. Pretty intense curse there in chapter 3. And he demands that Joab and all of Joab's men mourn for Abner, which they do, probably pretty reluctantly, but they mourn for him nonetheless. And we come to the end of chapter 3, and it is a crazy, crazy mess going on down in Judah. But then, that's not enough. Enter chapter 4. So we're back in Mahaniah, the northern kingdom there where Ishbosheth reigns. And back there in the north, two of Ishbosheth's military captains, who were also brothers, Baanah and Rechab are their names, they assassinate Ishbosheth. So now the king is dead in the north. And like the guy in 2 Samuel 1, if you remember, he brings these news of, this news of Saul and his sons being dead, and he claims himself to have killed Saul, thinking he's bringing the king good news. Well, these guys bring the head of Ishbosheth to David in the south, thinking, I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to get put in David's army. This is going to be great. I've killed his rival king. And they bring David his head. And David's like, what are you doing? Verse 11, he says, how do you think I'm going to commend you for having killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed? And David kills these two men, executes them for killing the king. And thus, at the end of chapter 4, we are left in just, just a whirlwind of all kinds of violence and devastation and military coups and alliances in our wake. It is, it is a hot mess. It's just a hot mess. Go on. You got people committing treason and cutting people's heads off. and It's just crazy. But even in the craziness, serving a purpose where God is putting David back into more power into the kingdom of Israel. You know, and after spending uh, some time this week immersed really in these three chapters, just praying through how the Spirit would lead me to open up God's word with you. You know, it's really hard to get to the end of these three chapters, look at all these major players in these three chapters and think, well, that guy's a good guy. That guy's a hero here. I'll follow him. But you're left thinking that nobody looks good here. Like, absolutely nobody. Not Ishbosheth, not Abner, not Joab, not Azahel, not Baanah, and Rechab, not even David. Yeah, David's merciful towards Abner, but the situation with Michael, his wife, in the middle of chapter 3. It doesn't put him in a very good light. But yeah, he is justified in bringing her back, for she technically is his wife. But it appears from the text that the biggest reason he's bringing her back is not because he loves her, but because he's making a political move. You know, if he can once again unite with the daughter of Saul, maybe, maybe the descendants of Saul will be more inclined to follow him as king. You know, his motives, at least from what we can read, are, are not for love, but he's making shrewd political dealings here, bringing her back, and he brings her back, and even her husband that she's with then, even if he's not truly her husband, he's weeping the whole time that she's being taken away, until Abner looks at him and says, go home. It's really sad. I mean, nobody looks good. Nobody seems to be the hero here. 
Because at the heart of every single character in these three chapters, at the heart of every single one of them, is unbridled ambition. For every one of these key players, ambition drove their actions. Whether it's ambition for power, for riches, for fame, for prominence, for politics. Some unchecked pursuit blinded them to everything else going on and nothing was going to stand in their way so they could achieve it. When you think about it, Abner, his ambition was to hold on to power, to even acquire more power. It leads him to a point an unqualified king as a puppet that ultimately led to his downfall. Joab, his ambition to seek vengeance on his brother's killer leads him to commit murder and receive a curse upon his family that would last for generations. Azahel, little brother of Joab, his ambition for glory and renown on slaying a rival commander in Israel. The text says in chapter 2 that Azahel wanted Abner's armor so that he could probably parade it, show that he had defeated the great commander in Israel, and that led him to his death at the hands of Abner. But I'm not recap. The two brothers who wanted commendation and promotion in David's army, this ambition led them to murder their king, which led to their own executions. Ishbosheth begins to fear the rising power and popularity of Abner. His own ambition to hold on to the throne leads him to accuse Abner, whether falsely or truly, accuse Abner of sleeping with his dad's concubine. It leads, Ab leads to Abner leaving, weakening his military force and influence, and then he is assassinated. Even David, we didn't talk about this much, but it can be argued that in chapter 3, the very beginning, when it lists David's wives and sons, it can be argued that many of those marriages were political alliances for power. You know, one of the sons that's mentioned is Absalom, verse 3, chapter 3, which would prove to be a big problem for David in chapters to come. But ambition... Unbridled, self-absorbed ambition is all over this chapter. And this idea of ambition, you know, particularly ambition in the life of a follower of Christ, is something I've thought about, honestly, for, for a few years now. You know, I remember sitting across from a ministry leader that I respected a lot back in, actually, the end of 2020, November of 2020, when you could actually go back to places and this ministry leader, well-intentioned as he was, sat across from me over the course of that lunch and told me that in order to be a good pastor, I needed to have hunger. That's the word he used. Hunger. Not a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but ambition, drive, motivation. You know, at the time, he wasn't sure I had enough hunger to be a pastor. And it was a hard conversation. I remember that night coming home and asking myself a lot of questions and uh, opening up the scriptures. I stayed up most of the night developing what, what I would call now a pastoral theology. You know, my own ideas of what a pastor should possess and who a pastor should be according to the Bible. I fled to Eugene Peterson and all these other writers that were kind of my refuge in those times reminding me of what a pastor is. 
And ambition is there, no doubt. Listen, ambition is in the New Testament. It's there. But it's not the type of ambition this guy I'm talking to in 2020 was talking about. It's not the type of ambition centered on making and achieving goals or building a brand or growing a church. Nothing like that at all. Which leads us to a question this morning. What is godly ambition? What is godly ambition? Now, I'm not just talking about Enneagram 1s and 3s here, all right? Like you drivers and you goal-oriented people that love being entrepreneurs and starting new things and making money and building companies and businesses. I'm not just talking about you guys. I am. But not just you. But I'm talking about the parent who has ambitious dreams and aspirations for your kids. I'm talking about student. We have some students here about to start the semester, whether it be at Sanford, high school, Beeson. I'm talking to you. You seek to achieve good grades, get into a good college, have a good job, fill the role of a pastor one day. I'm talking to the athlete whose ambition drives you to train your body in ways that I will never understand or desire to do, but to sacrifice your time and energy to attain physical goals. I'm talking to the man or woman who has an ambition for a serious hobby, you know, maybe a hobby that you spend money and time on, you take classes on, you get better at, so you can develop this hobby, enjoy it more and more. I'm talking about I'm talking to the person who's ambitious about helping people. And that's a good thing, good doubt. But sometimes the desire of helping people is rooted in your own desire to feel needed, to want recognition or praise. You know, all of us in this room are ambitious about something. We have something or someone that drives us. And motivates us. But how do we center that ambition where it needs to be centered? And at the same time, channel it in ways that will bring God the most glory and his people the greatest good. Well, let's get into it. I'm going to give you what I believe to be the equation of godly ambition. The equation of godly ambition according to the scriptures. And the first factor in that equation is this. The glory of God. The glory of God. Godly ambition begins with the glory of God. You know, it is a good thing. It's a good thing to work hard. It is a good thing to have strong desires and determination. But it is only good if the ultimate driving force behind your desire and determination is the glory of God and not the glory of self. You know, in our text for 2 Samuel today, it's tough to find any motivating factor being wrapped up in the glory of God. It's hard. It's all about the glory of self, promotion of self. And that promotion of self has been a problem since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit, seeking to be like God. Carried into Genesis 11 as those builders begin to stack those stones. And Genesis 11.4 tells us to make a name for themselves. Ambition rooted in self-promotion robs God of the glory he rightfully deserves. Because here's the deal. Your passion and your ambition and the ability to carry out your ambition, physically carry it out, cognitively carry it out, everything you have that allows you to act upon your ambition is given to you by God. 
your healthy body, your healthy brain, your motivation, all gifts of God's grace. All of them. And whatever you're embarking upon, building a business, achieving athletic goals, making good grades, being a great parent, whatever it is, it's intended to be used for the glory of God. To make his name and renown and fame and greatness known. Not yours. You know, all your achievements are intended to be avenues. Avenues of praise to God, not awards for you. And even if you achieve accolades and success, praise the Lord. You achieve accolades and success, but your success is to be credited and stewarded to the glory of God and advancing his kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, this is a, he said, this is heaven to a saint and all things to serve the Lord Christ and to be owned by him as his servant is our soul's high ambition for eternity. And we, are, we are God's servants, church. And we use his gifts as his servants to bring him great glory. You know, when the glory of God is our goal, it will produce in us desires to do our best work. You know, he is excellent in all ways, church. And he deserves our very best. So that's the first factor in the equation. Glory of God. Second, the glory of God plus Christ-centered humility. Christ-centered humility. Again, humility. Very difficult to find in 2 Samuel 2 through 4. In anybody. Instead, it's a lot of self-aggrandizement, promotion, not humility. But possessing a radical amount of self-sacrifice is necessary. You know, as you achieve those things that God, by His grace, is allowing you to achieve, as you continue to see yourself as a recipient of God's gracious gifts, as, as you cultivate in your heart just an attitude of thankfulness to God... On a regular basis, just thanking him for his grace in your life. When you give him credit in ways that he deserves, using your drive and your motivation to serve other people and to give him glory, whatever platform he's given you, all of those things demonstrate a radical humility that is centered on Christ. You know, Paul, we read this already. I love that we already read it. It's just the spirit of God. Um, we read in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Where Paul's giving instructions to the church on what humility looks like. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. So, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. There's the word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what drives you? What are you most ambitious about? What are you most passionate about? Paul says, whatever it is, use it to serve one another. Whatever your interests are, look to elevate someone else's interest above your own. And he roots it in the example of Christ. Look at verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. Which can you imagine a body with this mind among ourselves? We're about to hear here. And I pray for that. I pray for that here. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ambition of Christ that drove his journey to the cross was the glory of God his Father. He humbled himself that God may be glorified. So Christ Jesus, the supreme reigning authority over all things, the sustainer of all things, if he himself can humble himself for the good of others and for the glory of God, how much more should we use our accolades and achievements and success and deflect it off of ourselves to the glory of God? C.J. Manning gives a definition of humility says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness in our sinfulness. You know, if we are constantly remembering that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from our God, it will produce in us a selfless humility that will always be deflecting attention away from ourselves and onto our gracious God. It's only by God's grace we're saved. It's only by, by God's grace that we are successful. With Christ-centered humility, we are far more focused on how the quality of our work reflects on God than reflects on us. Our driving force in developing skills and knowledge in our field is not for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. And at the root of our delight in being created and starting new things is that our God is creative and is always beginning. We will see money as a gift to be stewarded well, not spent upon ourselves but for the good of others. Promotions will be seen as means to better serve our families, co-workers, and communities. You know, to quote uh, Amy DiMarcangelo, it's a tough last name, but that's what it is, DiMarcangelo. She said, we don't crucify pride by stifling ambition, but by refining it. Ambition's a good thing. It's a channel to be used in the right ways. Which leads to the third place, third piece of the equation. The glory of God plus Christ's inner humility plus spirit-empowered intensity. Spirit-empowered intensity. The spirit must be driving our desires and refining our desires all along the way. And there's a lot of intensity in this account of 2 Samuel. A, a lot of intensity, a lot of pursuits. A lot of passions, a lot of murders, a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, a lot of vengeance, not a lot of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a fine line when it comes to ambition between trusting God to act and putting our hands in the plow, so to speak. I mean, do we trust God in his timing to wait around for him to open doors? Or do we send those resumes? Or spend that money on marketing. Or push our kids to be a part of that team. And the answer is, is yes and yes. You know, I think about a farmer. 
so many farming metaphors, right, in the stories of the New Testament, really the whole Bible, particularly the New Testament. You know, a farmer can't expect a harvest if he doesn't go out and do the work of planting and sowing and tilling, right? He's got to do the work. If he doesn't work hard to create the right conditions for crops to grow, he's not going to have fruit to show on harvest day. But at the same time, a farmer can't produce rain, can't create climate conditions necessary for crops to grow. He can't in and of himself create healthy soil. If farming is a combination of hard work on our end, and yet reliance on God to produce the conditions that we cannot produce for things to grow. You know, Amy DiMarcangelo, she says again, trusting God doesn't mean folding our hands. It means using the hands he's given us to hustle. And Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 28-29. says, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we, may, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil, I work, I struggle, I use my energy in every way possible, but it's his energy. That he is working in me to do the work. We work. He provides the means to work. And that's kind of drive. kind of drive the scriptures talking about. It, takes, it, it requires a lot of self-assessment. It's a constant evaluating of our motives. Of our reasons why we're pouring so much time and energy and passion into something or someone. You know, if there's not a lot of pause in your ambition, if there's not a lot of slowing down and self-assessment taking place, you can quickly find yourself well into your pursuits. And without even realizing it, you've isolated your family, your spouse, your friends, your church community, those in your life that care about you. And your relationships with others will feel distant and your relationship with God will feel foreign. Don't let your ambition drive you. Drive your ambition. Channel it. Channel your passions by ultimately having a passion for God to look beautiful and glorious and enough. And make that glory known through your hard work, through your passion. The glory of God is Christ-centered humility, the spirit-empowered intensity equals godly image. That's it. These three factors contribute to having ambition that is centered on God. And so in light of that, we're running out of time here. This is going to be fire hydrant style real quick, so just buckle up. But I'm going to give you five questions, five questions that will help you gauge, is my ambition godly or is it worldly? Five questions to process as you find yourself driven, excited, passionate. Is this in honor of God or in honor of self? So five questions. Here we go. First, how do I treat people? How do I treat people? Worldly ambition tends to see people as pawns to further our own ends. Godly ambition views people as image barriers worthy of care and sacrifice. If you're in your pursuits, are people seen as expendable? Are they seen as obstacles to overcome in your quest to achieving your goals? Or do you maintain an appropriate view of God's image bearers in the midst of your pursuits? Do you see how many people you can include in achieving your goals? 
can bring along with you, rather than how many people you can discard in achieving your goals. You know, a good question to ask yourself is, what does your family think about your passions? If you're going hard after something, what does your family think? What does your wife, what does your husband think? What do your kids think? Do you see your kids enough to ask them? Do they love your passion and your ambition? Or are they pushed aside because of it? Second, where do I find my contentment? Where do I find my contentment? Worldly ambition finds contentment hard to grasp. Godly ambition finds its contentment in Christ regardless of where he's placed us. You know, there's a healthy amount of patience associated with godly ambition. It's a high view of God's sovereignty, needing, and godly ambition. That even as you are passionately going after those dreams that you have, you're at the same time understanding that God moves in his own timing. That he chooses to open doors and shut doors. So do you find yourself constantly dissatisfied with your place in life? Are your motivating factors and your ambition more to get out of the living situation you may find yourself in? Better house, better car, more comfortable amenities? You're never satisfied with constantly grasping after something that can never be caught? Are you content and patient, trusting in God's sovereign care of you, regardless of where you may find yourself? Third question. Where do I find my value? Where do I find my value? Worldly ambition. With worldly ambition, our values fixed on achievements and or failures. With godly ambition, our, val our value is found in Christ regardless of our performance. When you succeed, do you like yourself more? When you fail, does it debilitate you? Are you fixated on it? you fix your self-worth on your ability to perform at a high level? To please your bosses, to win the affection of those who are close to you? Or is your self-worth rooted in a heavenly father that saw every single way you would ever possibly fail and chose to send his son to woo you back to him anyway? You know, your value in Christ must be separated from your performance for him. It must be. Because you cannot perform well enough to earn God's favor. Your favor has been earned in Christ Jesus who performed for you. He has done it for you. Your value is fixed in Him. So rest in Him regardless of your circumstances. So where do you find value? Fourth, how do I view others' others' success? How do I view others' success? Worldly ambition sows envy and resentment in us when others succeed. Godly ambition rejoices in another's accomplishments. You know, when someone else gets the promotion you want, when someone else's kids make the team your kids didn't make, when you're a part of a team contributing to a big project or goal and somebody else receives more credit than you, when someone else in their same stage in life buys their first house and you're still in an apartment, whatever the situation might be, are you resentful or rejoicing? Where's your heart when others achieve the things you've been striving for before you do? Assuming you even do. 
you know, can tell a lot about where your ambition is centered based on how you feel when other people flourish and succeed. And then fifth, last, ultimately, what are my motives? What are my motives? And all these questions require honesty, right? I mean, you need to be honest with yourself. But worldly ambition places the glory of self at its heart, and godly ambition places the glory of Christ at its heart. So we, we end where we started here, with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Why do you want to achieve your goals? Why do you want to exercise your passion? Why do you desire to have success? Because here's the deal. We may answer that question, well, to better my family, to serve other people, to give back to my community. And all those are good reasons, no doubt. But how are those reasons any different from the person who rejects Christ as Lord? There's still good humanitarians out there that don't follow Jesus. that may have those same goals you do. Those same reasons for succeeding that you do. Those reasons are not enough. What makes us distinct in our pursuits, Christ follower, what makes us distinct are the ends of our pursuits. And the ends of our pursuits, and the ends of our the ends of our pursuits are the glory of God. All roads lead back to his infinite value and fame and worth. All roads for the Christ follower. So may we possess, church, may we possess godly ambition. May we channel all of our hopes, goals, and dreams toward the one who is only appropriate. To receive all of our praise and adoration and worship. And that is the Lord our God. And as he gives us success, we will declare with the psalmist in Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faith. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. I want to ask you just where you are. Maybe, maybe this sermon has struck a chord with you. Maybe there are things you're pursuing right now that are, are not centered on the glory of God. Maybe they're more centered on yourself, more centered on bettering your family, more centered on whatever the case may be. I just ask you just to hold your hands out and just surrender. Just surrender. Posture to the Lord. And I just want you where you are, just to spend a second just asking God to take your goals, to take your ambition, to take your passions, to take your drive, and to use it for his glory, channel it for his ends, so that he receives the rightful praise that he deserves. So just take a minute, just where you are, and just spend some time doing that.
because I can get so self-absorbed, so focused on my own world and goals and dreams. I, I forget you. And so Lord, I ask you to curb our hearts away from ourselves. Curb them towards yourself. It's no doubt that our hearts produce so many idols on a given day. Idols that demand our time and attention and affection. Lord, I pray you smash all those in our hearts. You help us to strike a balance between work and trust. We're going to be so off-centered off on that spectrum so often. Father, when we find ourselves off-center, we bank on your grace and your mercy, which are forever plentiful and available to us. Thank you for Christ. Jesus truly is better. And he is better than our goals. He's better than our hopes. He's better than our dreams. He's better than any accolade or award we could ever achieve. Knowing you, O oh God, in Christ Jesus is better than anything we could ever ask or imagine or accomplish in this life. Remind us of that. We forget it. I forget it. Remind us of God. Use us. Use our talents and our gifts. Use them for your praise and your renown. The uttermost parts of the earth. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.